Hey guys, welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Danny. And today we are joined by Matt. Ashley is out sick, not with COVID, uh, but Matt is uh, hosting our podcast today. And Matt Moss is of Historical Firearms, uh, The Armorer's Bench, uh, a new book on the Piat, and I believe a book on the Sten, and uh, has joined us to talk a little firearms history today. So did I miss anything for your bio, Matt? Hey, Danny. No, uh, I think you've pretty much covered my current output. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Uh, honored to be in Ashley's shoes for for the day. Um, yeah, um, I recently published a book on the Piat, which is a odd English, well, British um, anti-tank weapon. And I run a website called The Armourer's Bench, and we do videos and uh, articles about various small arms. And we've had the pleasure of filming a fair few up at the Cody Firearms Museum. Yeah, Matt has, we've had the chance to host Matt a few times here at the CFM, and it's always been a lot of fun uh, hanging out and looking at guns and sometimes disassembling and struggling to reassemble them. <laughs> um, I should also mention that you're a podcast host on your own. Uh, do you want to plug that? Yeah, sure. For our listeners. Um, yeah, so we've basically just started a new uh, war movie podcast. So like anyone who's interested in firearms history, we we love a good war movie. Um, and we've we've started a new podcast called Fighting on Film. So we're basically looking at any and all um, films and um, even short films, anything really that's been committed to celluloid that involves um, conflict and fighting. So, so far we've had some really interesting but niche films, but we're hoping to do some that people may have actually heard of as well. <laughs> I've... I've only listened to one episode so far, but I really love the one I did listen to about um, There's the Glory. And that was one I had never heard of and I'm planning to watch now. So oh, great. definitely worth a listen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but today, Matt and I are going to talk. We've both spent a lot of time talking to each other about Winchester history. And we've sort of come up with this weird dichotomy that we see in uh, in the company's past. And I, working with this collection, have always become a bit of a Winchester fanboy historically. Like, I, I spend so much time with the materials, just it's like, it's hard not to appreciate that specific, you know, past. Um, but there's this weird thing where Winchester is at times extremely forward thinking. Um, and then they kind of don't do anything with it. Yeah, there's, and, there's an or interesting they do a little dichotomy, bit, isn't there? Yeah, and they give it up. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of firsts in the company history. You know, there's they're one of the earliest commercial bolt action manufacturers. Them and Remington uh, both come out with bolt actions around the same time. Yeah. Um, they were, yep, they were early into semi-autos. Uh, I think the first U.S. manufactured commercial semi-auto i think so yeah with the um, i don't know where they stand in the world rankings in that regard um arguably the world's first quote unquote assault rifle in oh the yeah machine oh, we'll rifle. get to that in a moment definitely yeah we'll get that that one's that one's a particular whiteboard with like red string detective losing his mind yeah between matt yeah. and i it's a conspiracy theory um, fest <laughs> yeah they uh the G30 and Winchester light rifle have their own sort of like, this is very interesting. Of course, I skipped over one in that they have a really great commercial bolt action rifle um, that they don't bring out right at the end of World War One. 
Um, yeah, there's a few, there's probably a few more I'm, I'm missing here. Um, but those are the ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, well, there's stuff like the uh, the Winchester Liberator shotguns, mm-hmm. the uh, all the interesting stuff they developed for the U.S. Army through uh, Project Salvo and Pro- um, and Spew, uh, the spe- Special Purpose Infantry Weapon Program. So there's there's all kinds of really interesting stuff right through up into the '60s. And it, it crosses over, you know. There's that early company history where they're doing things like, uh, you know, a bolt action or a straight pull or the semi-autos that when it's still Winchester repeating arms, then Olin takes over and this tradition sort of lives through the change in ownership. Like there's this stuff that happened early um, that they did. So let's, let's wind it back a little bit and start talking about some of the details on some of the early ones. So we mentioned um, the first bolt action that they did, the Winchester Hotchkiss. Uh, that one, that one, I think they actually explored maybe the most. They they invested some a fair bit of resources, uh, built quite a few, sold some, but the market didn't seem to respond well, so they let that one go. But they worked with Benjamin Hotchkiss, mm-hmm. um, who's a name probably familiar to our listeners, who uh, did quite a few firearms inventions, um, influential in machine gun design, um, bolt action design, probably things I'm not thinking of. Um, but it seems to so me with, the with the Hotchkiss, they sort of came in very early in, into mm-hmm. that market and people perhaps weren't quite ready for it. Def- certainly militaries, yeah. you know, most, most uh, militaries are fairly conservative with their, you know, their procurement. And a lot of the times, a lot of fairly advanced weapons that are shown early on in the development of, of uh, systems like bolt action or semi-auto, um, there's resistance to them from mm-hmm. certain echelons of, of uh, army procurement systems. So perhaps that that's certainly, I think, what happened with the, the Winchester uh, Hotchkiss. But um, they came back and they, they, they tried again, didn't they? Yeah, they tried again. Um, you know, they, they invested, obviously, in the, the Winchester Lee, mm-hmm. the Lee Navy rifle. So that was their next bolt action. And probably the one of the... I think that was the first American straight pull, maybe. I think so. I don't know how many there have been, but certainly, certainly um, one that was produced in numbers. I think. Mm-hmm. And in that intermediate time, they also had they recognized the talent of John Browning and invested. You know, they bought up his designs, hired him on, um, it, to much success. Uh, you know, this one's not really an unsuccessful one, but then right as he was hitting his stride in design in his design history they decided it was time to part ways yeah. um so i think that one in a way fits our you know if we're coming up with a criteria of you know to fit things into this episode of what did winchester have some forethought on and then give up on too soon yeah well maybe they didn't interestingly with browning it, it sort of revolved around um semi-automatic uh centerfy rifles and you know Winchester at the time weren't very forethinking and thought we, we don't need that. That's far too ex- expensive a, a price to be compensating mm-hmm. the designer for something that we possibly aren't going to put into production because obviously Winchester bought most of Browning's rifle shotgun uh, patents during that mm-hmm. golden age. And the vast majority of them, they didn't actually put into production. They just, they bought to close out the market and make sure they had the, the IP on. But with the, the semi-auto rifles, the, the interest wasn't 
so much there for Winchester and and obviously that was something they came to regret and rushed in with the the TC Johnson rifles as well with the um, 1903 and the the whole series of self-loaders. Yeah, and that one, it didn't take very long, I think, to realize the regret. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, there's hesitancy in the late 1890s, right at the turn of the century. Um, And then very quickly, they realize we need to, we need to be competitive in this area. Oh, no. Remington and Colt might get in on this. Yeah. And then, but then it's, it's too late. And so, you know, Johnson has to design a semi-auto rifle without a charging handle, which to his credit, he does successfully. Yeah. Um, Ambidextrous too. Yeah. Or thinking, <laughs> yeah, it's, future thinking, right? Yeah. There. <laughs> there we go. That, so that's, so that's an ambidextrous charging rifle. Um, thanks to TC Johnson. So very forward thinking, but yeah, you know, it, it's, it's done as this loss of Browning. Um, Winchester's course, always by been that a point, company that can adapt though. Yeah. Historically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. They have been able to, to move quickly to, uh, to catch back up when they've, when they've had these missteps. And I think another one of these missteps is at the end of world war one, they have a series of bolt actions again by TC Johnson. They have a commercial version ready to go to production. And then the company executives say, we're not really sure that that's what we want right now. And Remington sort of sneakily beats them to the punch. They play a little game of trickery, introduce a model that's not really ready. They claim it's on its way to kind of take the wind out of Winchester sales. Winchester drops the product. Then Remington comes out with a Model 30, which proves to be a success. And then Winchester has to pick back up and introduce the 54. And then, and then they get to the 70, which becomes like the iconic American bolt action. So they catch up very well, but they kind of got caught sleeping, I think. You would think that going straight to the 54 would be, you know, the, the most sensible course of action. The 54 is an interesting one because, as you say, it sort of leads to that Model 70, which has been dominant within uh, U.S. civilian uh, hunting rifle, the hunting rifle market for, for decades, wasn't it? Yeah, and there's certainly a lot more options now, but um, you know, if you still say the rifleman's rifle, people will know you're talking about a Model 70 yeah. in in firearm circles. I mean, I suppose a, it's Winchester's last iconic um, design. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly successful designs they've had since then, but that one kind of looms above the rest as an iconic piece. I think you could say it's right up there with like the 73 as a Winchester icon. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why I was thinking it's, it's one of those guns that people instantly think of when you say Winchester and it's also a generational thing as well. So like mm-hmm. you, you say that to anyone that was born 1945 onwards and then, you know, they'll, they'll instantly have like a, a recollection of the model 70 seeing adverts using it, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized we also skipped over one um, in the Centennial revolvers. Yeah. Were, there's the famous Mason revolver that was used to sort of dissuade Colt from continuing production of the Burgess, but about seven years prior to that gun were the Wetmore, Wells, maybe Borchardt mm. revolvers. 
um, with a fairly nice design, adaptable to a number of calibers, swing out cylinders, unlike a Colt. Um, yeah, that's very forward thinking. Yeah, I mean, that swing out cylinder is, I don't, I don't know when the first swing out cylinder happens, but that's got to be one of the earliest ones. I think so, um, because obviously in Europe, it was pretty much dominated by either um, fixed frame uh, loading gate at the rear, or in the case of the Webley, uh, brake action. So yeah, you know, and one of those swing out um, cylinders was probably quite early. I always get quite confused with the, the myriad of Winchester revolvers for a company that never actually sold a revolver. They pro they've produced a lot of revolver designs. <laughs> that's a, that's a very good point. For they never sold one, but they they made a number of unique and distinct designs. Um, and yeah, that you know, Colts at that point are solid frame. The Smith and Wessons are break open, you know, on a hinged frame. Yeah. Um, that and would have it, been it's, a... it's swing out frame that everyone moves to. So, you know, by yeah. the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, it's the, the swing out frame is the, is the, uh, is the most prominent design, especially with military and police, uh, firearms, um, with the various Smith and Wesson uh, revolvers that, mm -hmm. that come through and the, and the Colts. But um, yeah, that's that's another aspect where uh, I hadn't thought of that one actually. That Winchester were forward thinking by several decades, which is often the case when you know with some of these examples. Um, but they never quite got it to market for one reason or another. Yeah, and that one I think is probably. I think at the end of this, we're going to have to pick like a most forward thinking thing. Mm. Um, and that one might have to be pretty far up there because of how. You know, even in very popular revolvers today, that swing out feature. Yeah, it's um, ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, but we've danced around the one for long enough now that I go. think we can dive into it. So do you want to do the introduction for the bird? Yeah. So when Danny and I first met several years ago, um, one of the first things we got talking about was the the Burton machine rifle. And for those that don't know what the Burton machine rifle is. It's a weapon that was developed by Winchester during World War One, and it's chambered in uh, three, four, five uh, Winchester self-loading, and it's possibly one of the earliest, certainly probably the earliest American um, semi-automatic select fire um, intermediate cartridge chambered uh, rifle. Uh, that that came about but that's that's basically the sum of what we know about the weapon for sure isn't it danny yeah it's it's i always call it a a total mystery gun i mean i think most people call it the burton machine rifle you could also call it the burton mystery rifle um <laughs> and it's it's documented in winchester's inventory notes which have been published as a rather hard to find book um and that's the only real uh, sort of yeah. documentary evidence we have of the rifle yeah that's the only that's the absolutely the only source we have about the rifle itself uh, and it's we're talking you know just a few lines you know we're not even it's not even a whole paragraph uh in that book um there's a few tantalizing hints in some winchester notes at the end of World War One, that the army might be thinking about a new rifle. Yeah. Can we submit anything? 
but they never say what they're thinking of. No. And we've done, we've done a heck of a lot of research into trying to track down a paper trail for the Burton. Mm -hmm. So we've had colleagues that have looked through the, the national archives. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I have both looked through uh, the McCracken archive, which has mm -hmm. most of Winchester's uh, factory documents that survive. Um, I've spent hours looking through uh, patents on Google patents and US patent office website, trying to track down any sort of hint of, uh, the, the features that this rifle has that, you know, may have been patented. And the only thing we've actually found is um, a pair of magazine loading tool patents from TC Johnson and Burton himself um, that have magazines and cartridges that look like the, the Burton's um, three, four, five round. Well, that's about it. We, there's no real other documentary evidence that this thing even existed. Yeah, this is, this is very much, if the physical gun did not exist today, it's likely uh, the patent documentation would be there. That note in the Winchester inventory would be there, but no one would, I mean, those are so obscure that I doubt anybody would know about it if the gun itself did not exist. Yeah. Well, the, the only other um, sort of evidence we have is some uh, cartridge loading notes mm -hmm. on the loading development. And I think there's a, there's a couple of uh, Winchester 1885 sing, um, single shot rifles that are set up to test the actual mm -hmm. ammunition, wasn't there? But other yeah. than that, there's there's basically nothing. So in that sort of void of information, there's been the gaps sort of been have been filled in, hasn't hasn't there? So you yeah. know we've had theories that it was some sort of balloon buster, or um, that it might have been like a uh, an, an infantry cum um, aircraft weapon that could be the barrel could be changed out because there are actually two barrels, aren't there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we and the basis for that theory is that there is a barrel for it that has a bayonet lug and a barrel for it without a bayonet lug, and we don't even know what bayonet it takes. No, um, we haven't we haven't quite got to that yet. Um, there's a couple potential ones. Our former curator of the museum always thought it was adapted from a Lee Navy bayonet, mm -hmm. um, but the Winchester never kept track of the specific bayonet. So short of trying every Lee Navy bayonet in the collection and seeing if they, because the, to adapt one, the barrel diameter, I think would have to be the, the muzzle ring on the actual bayonet itself would have had to been changed. So um, the pattern 17 bayonets, which were common to Winchester at the time, or excuse me, model 1917 or pattern 14, yeah, bayonets. Um, well, you're not a busy guy. I mean, I'm sure you can you can spend a couple of days going through yeah. all the bayonets. <laughs> yeah, we just need to pull out every bayonet we have and, and try each one. Um, yeah, and it's the features that are all very very modern are all there. You know, it's the cartridge. You know, looking at the load data it, in its day, the the self loader cartridges that this was developed from were all considered pretty underpowered. Yeah, but yeah by our standards, the muzzle energy um, that they're putting out is really similar to 556. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's very much in that inner, it fits well within the intermediate cartridge range. It's not like it's just barely on the cusp of being enough energy. Um, it's, a, it's a straight wall cartridge with a very modern pointed bullet. Um, the gun is select fire, again, very modern. It's fed from detachable 
Books magazines. Two of them. Um, probably the only part about the gun that's not, or I guess the parts about the gun that aren't very modern are it's very heavy and it's a, you know, it's just a blowback action, which, you know, I don't think very many people would not consider that for like, you know, if you're adopting an infantry rifle today, um, blowback is probably it's the last thing you would, you would think of. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I think it weighs about 10 pounds all told, mm-hmm. which is fairly weighty, but by contemporary standards, probably not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, within the day, it's certainly not, it's on the heavier end, but not without, you know, it, it has some precedent. Some yeah. And the actual, the prototype that we, we have surviving is, it appears to be, you know, quite um, late stage sort of development. So it's really nicely machined, yes. blued. The wood uh, furniture on it is very nicely made and stained. Um, and the gun goes together with, you know, perfect fit. Almost too perfect, in fact, because when we tried to take it apart, we, we couldn't really work out where it came apart. So we're at the point now where we think the action definitely comes out of the rear of the gun. But when we came to take it apart a couple of years ago, we took the butt off, um, which then found we found housed a, 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 what appears to be a buffer assembly, but we couldn't mm-hmm. get that off. So we don't actually know what the bolt in its entirety looks like, or if there's any mm-hmm. kind of you know um, retardation mechanism or you know anything to to mitigate this blowback. Because I, I wouldn't want to fire a five five six blowback. You know that would no yeah there's the we're wondering like what is going on inside there to to slow this down because the 401s in the self-loader series were pushing the limits yes. for what the action could handle and they're you know they're kind of notorious among people that collect them now for breaking themselves apart mm-hmm. you know cracking their own stocks um so this one is hard to imagine and it almost when we took that buttstock off, it almost felt like there was some specialized tool. Yeah, because there was in, two in notches, way, weren't there? That sort yeah. of like looked like they would interface with with like a sort of wrench or something like that, and that would 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 have opened up the action. But yeah, as you were saying, like the receiver on the burden is extremely well machined, and and I get the feeling from the weight and sort of the handling of it, it, it feels like it's probably quite a thick walled receiver to cope mm-hmm. with this sort of the high pressures of, of being a, a blowback, you know, centerfire full caliber rifle. And they were, they were obviously worried about, you know, sustained fire because they put, you know, they, they spent time built, building fins into both of the barrels we have. Yeah. Which is um, a lot of machine. We're worried about. Yeah. They were definitely worried about cooling the barrel mm-hmm. and keeping the gun cool. Um, I kind of half suspect, like I'm scared that if we ever were able to get the receiver cap off and see that bolt, that it's going to be like a multi-lug rotating bolt inside, like somehow hidden inside that thing. Like that's my fear that it'll just be this. Oh, flap out. <laughs> yeah, it'll be this weird, or even worse, like a roller delayed. Like it'll be something yeah. wild. Like um, proto, proto um, roller locked, like the most yeah. advanced possible action. 30 40 um, 50 years ahead of its time and it's yeah uh, yeah i mean there's so many mysteries with the rifle that we just you know we 
we haven't we almost every time we look into this we end up with more questions than answers again on top of the the questions we already had um because it's the handling of the of the rifle although it's quite heavy is you know it's quite it handles quite nicely it's a, it's an ergonomic um nicely nicely designed rifle that has some quite futuristic sort of like ergonomic like aesthetic cues yeah. it's kind of kind of shoots an esque but then it also has an inline stock almost which mm -hmm. is again that's very you know ahead of its time because inline stocks wouldn't become a thing until you know world war ii the 50s onwards yeah we're actually bringing up some of the features i hadn't really thought about you know we we zero in on the cartridge being modern the select fire aspect being modern mm. but the ergonomics are quite modern um anybody that's held an ar-15 grip for instance would be very comfortable yeah. on that burton grip uh the inline stock is there um the weight even though it is a heavy gun the weight is mostly towards it's well distributed the back yeah it's, yeah it's towards the back of the gun so it stays balanced um yeah it, it's 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 very there's i think we could probably spend time breaking down each feature that you know the buffer tube if it if it is indeed a buffer tube that's forward thing you know it's yeah. They threw out every design feature of what you'd expect in a 1918, 1917 gun um, and came up with all these others. I think but I th we it's at least 35 years ahead of its time, I think, from, from sitting yeah, down and thinking about it. Yeah, if we had to put a number on it, that's, yeah, that's about right. If we had to put a number on it, I, th I think that's about right. Um, but we could do an entire episode on, on the Ben. We could yeah, talk we, about we the really all day, could. and we have done. So Yeah. <laughs> We we have so we should mention some of the later stuff that we've we hinted at. Honorable mention though, what about um, the uh, Humiston Pugsley fifty caliber rifle? Oh right, yeah, another gun from the same time period. Um, we think used in the development of the Browning fifty BMG cartridge. Yeah, Winchester was tasked with developing the cartridge. Browning was working on the gun that would become the M two machine gun. Um, so obviously they needed some kind of test bed to fire it. Was this that gun or was this, you know, them saying, well, we have this new cartridge design. How could we make the gun useful or, or make a gun to go with it? It certainly um, seems like it was um, probably developed as a test bed, but some of its features do suggest that it was, you know, a design that had been thought out thoroughly. It wasn't something that was a workshop test gun to to basically right. just test tolerances and, and and pressure and loads and such like you know because it has that amazing action where it's like a it's a mauser style action but it has a uh, the mm -hmm. pistol grip is actually mounted on the bolt body isn't it and it sort of like mm -hmm. rotates 80 90 degrees and that's how you cycle a weapon and mm -hmm. when we were when we were examining it last uh, especially when it was mounted on its own little custom um, recoil mount it sort of mm -hmm. it moves well in the shoulder on this articulating mount, but you can also cycle the action without really taking your um, cheek off off of the butt stock. So you're not losing sight picture while you're cycling. Mm -hmm. So it, it definitely seems like there's design aspects of that rifle that were, you know, while it may have been used to, to test the ammunition, it certainly seems like someone was thinking, well. You know, maybe maybe we need an anti-tank rifle. Maybe the machine gun's great, but what if we also had a, you know, a manual action, bolt action, uh, anti-tank rifle like the um, the German Tigerbeer? Yeah, um, 
because yeah, it ha it has all those features that like a very modern shooter I think would appreciate. You know, that ability to keep your cheek weld as you cycle the bolt. That's a very modern shooting yeah. technique. Yeah. Um. But at the same and, and to contrast, all the a prototype gun made just to test if this cartridge works almost always looks much more crude. Well, yeah, um, the, and this rifle, the Pugsley uh, Humiston rifle and the, the Burton have that in common. They're quite, you know, they're, they're fairly advanced models. They aren't sort of in the white. They aren't rough and ready. They're nicely finished weapons. So um, there is one phot photograph of the Winchester um, anti-tank rifle next to a pair of the 50 caliber machine guns that end up being developed just right at the end of the first world war and it's actually mounted with a winchester a5 optic yeah so and it still has that scope as well rail. yeah it has the scope rail on the gun um it's got a nice tripod mount um the tripod and the scope that it was paired with don't survive but uh the gun itself and again it's one of those ones that it's photographed in a book outside of that book and that photograph uh, if the thing didn't exist, there's so few references to it that um, yeah. it would probably un be unknown. Yeah, I've dug through a lot of the archival material that we have access to, and the only real mentions of the rifle are tangential, and they are they're more linked towards gearing up for production of the machine guns. So, mm -hmm. like right at the end of the war, there's a there's a memo from Pugsley to the U.S. Army where he discusses like how many people and how much time and effort it's going to require to like tool up to produce say like 50 of these um, new mm -hmm. 50 caliber machine guns. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great one. Um, and it, I think in this window of time, Pugsley is one of the pieces of Winchester that he realizes that they don't want to be caught. You know, they got caught a couple of times in his tenure at the company, you know, mm. having to catch up. And so in the 1930s, they seem to be trying to thinking, be thinking ahead um, towards the next conflict. And they back the G30 as a, this is going to be our semi-auto rifle that we're ready to sell to whoever comes, you know, just in case it's just like World War I and um, all these allied governments come looking for guns to buy. We want to have something ready this time around. Um, and of course they want to be involved in the U S army trials. So they, they back what becomes the G 30 design. Um, this time they, they swing and miss and end up eventually building the M one grand, but the G 30 lives on in the, in the carbine. So that was one where they thought a little bit ahead and I think pulled it off, um, because they got, they eventually, yeah, the M one carbine definitely sort of like saved them on that one, I think. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's another that good example effort down the drain had they not scaled it down mm. to become that gun. Um, but then that whole process also leads us to a few more what ifs uh, down the road with, uh, especially to me, the lightweight military rifle, the, the gun that went up against the AR-15 yeah. uh, in the early 50s. That one, that one is, it's a bit weird because there's nothing in it, I think, that is especially forward thinking, but it's a very refined development. Mm, yeah, of it's a traditional stock gun, it. but it's yeah. chambered in this new intermediate small, uh, small caliber high velocity uh, two two four round, isn't it? You know, and mm -hmm. and the it, 
a lot it's sort of fallen by the wayside in like the ar history like people forget that winchester were quite close to you know giving call to run for their money on on that contract the the winchester the the, the 224 rifle was probably a, a a more mature design at that point than the ar was and it's it's sort of a shame that i know we've discussed this before and you made the the uh, the interesting suggestion that it probably would have made a great commercial rifle yeah i, I think it would have it's it's really well developed it's more at the limits of what could be done with it than the AR was, obviously. Yeah. But it has really good components. Um, you know, the design elements are all there to be successful. Uh, and clearly, you know, the that carbine and Garand style lockup have been used commercially in the Mini 14. Um, and this gun predated the Mini 14 by a decade or so. Um, yeah, so I, I think they just, it seems to to me that they caught wind of what some of the competitors were willing to spend on this thing and they didn't want to go in that deep. They didn't have the resources maybe to go in that deep and so they gave up on it. Perhaps not. But it yeah. was so well developed and at least a couple of their prototypes from the post-war era suggest they were thinking about a commercial market for the Garand and the Carbine but never pursued it. Um, I, th- I think this was their best bet to use that those design elements to make it happen, but they did not. No, but they did keep their hand in with military con- uh, contracts, you know, with entering stuff into Project Salvo with uh, Stefan Jansen's uh, double-barreled, basically an FN mm-hmm. file. And it's, you know, a two-barreled FN file. What a thing. That's one of the f- you know few things we're talking about today that I, I don't know whether you have, but I haven't had a chance to look at in person. I think it's at Springfield Armory or the NRA, I'm not sure, but one does exist because there are photographs of it floating around, but there's a great patent for it from, uh, I think, 1956. And it's, a, you know, one of these classic 50s sort of patent drawings, but it's just this giant chunky file with two barrels. Yeah. What a thing. And then they moved in the complete opposite direction of this super heavy file, double barrel file, towards super lightweight fiberglass mm-hmm. stocked sort of um, spew uh, special purpose infantry weapon um, rifles with, you know, a, a soft recoil systems and firing flechettes and having polymer magazines, you know, all this space age stuff that's like, that we only really think of as modern now. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely futuristic. And it's, it's stuff that would not really, well, in some ways it didn't catch on. Um, but some of the things, you know, obviously nobody's really using flechettes, but you know, polymer magazines, very common now, not that common then. Um, a number of other features we think of as, you know, a fiberglass stock. That's something that um, is much more accepted now than it was then. Um, but all these sort of individual design elements um, in one gun sort of mashed together to meet this very futuristic army requirement that never materialized ended up with a lot of forward-thinking things that then were just sort of dropped by the wayside until someone else picked them up. Yeah, like um, a free-floating barrel, uh, the, the sort of recoil mitigation system that we, we don't see again until the 80s with things like the, the HKG-11. Mm-hmm. So Winchester is, you know, way ahead of the curve on the, the Kraut space magic <laughs> in that they're getting 
they're including a, a recall mitigation system inside this very lightweight. They almost feel like shotguns, yeah. don't they? There's, I think the museum has like three or four of the prototypes in mm-hmm. various stages, and they almost feel sort of like a like a like a lightweight sporting mm-hmm. shotgun. You know, they have almost shotgun like sights, and that's kind of you know uh, comes from the fact that they are smoothbore. Mm-hmm. And fired darts and flechettes, so they're they're really fascinating weapons, and they're they're sort of I suppose they represent a kind of um, sort of dead end of development in that respect. That you know they they were pushing really hard to come up with something new, revolutionary, and you know forward thinking, but it didn't quite pull, you know they didn't quite pull it yeah. off. So we've talked about a lot about some of the different things. I have my conspiracy theory I need to put forward. Um, well, it's not so much a conspiracy theory about the more like the... Oh, it's a total conspiracy More theory. like the crazed <laughs> rantings of a museum curator sitting in the corner of Wyoming. <laughs> but obviously, you mentioned early on that Olin is working again on the next generation squad weapon for the army. Um, yeah, And there's yeah. all sorts of online speculation uh, about what that could be. I find it fascinating in the search for new cartridges. In my mind, we keep coming back to things that are have some pretty old roots. And so I'm going to suggest if any of the army is listening to this podcast, um, take a look at the Lee Navy and that six millimeter with some modern powder, I think could, I think that's the one they need to put a modern powder in there, put some uh, polymer cases on it. And I think they got what they need. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not too far away from what is now called 6.8 GP, which is the the round the army yeah. developed, uh, the projectile that the army developed. We don't we don't yet know what the actual muzzle velocities and the loadings are like for what the the army, uh, you know. Yeah, seen. it's all just sort of rumors. But they're rumored to be super high velocities, you know, magnum rounds. And as you said, like we've sort of come back round to this um, sort of. 10 of the 20th century interest in magnum mm-hmm. rounds that can reach out thousands of meters and you know with a very flat trajectory and, and punch with a lot of heft but yeah i think six millimeter lee navy would be a an optimal next generation squad weapon and obviously round, definitely. we're leaving out that the regular rifle could be you know nine millimeter usa which would just be renamed from 345 machine rifle adopted wholesale as is <laughs> yeah. The bet, and it's yeah. right there. It's been there the whole it's time, guys. You just need to absolutely the whole time. Just need to grab it with with two hands and embrace the the, the dual magazine, inline stocked, ambidextrous wonder that is the possibly made by Frank Bett. Right? <laughs> yeah, we don't we can't even decide for sure if it was him that did it. Um, no. So, in all these designs, uh, we'll wrap up. But what do you think was the most forward thinking? If you had to put like a year number on any of one of these, oh man, it's tricky. Like you made a solid argument for the swing out uh, revolver cylinder, you know, the, the the earliest Winchester revolver, um, and there's a there's a great argument to be made for the the spew um, prototypes. You know, they're very futuristic and forward thinking, but they're a dead end. So, you know, they aren't that forward thinking unless somebody in the future revisits flechettes and how it gets adopted yeah if if next generation squad weapon completely bombs and you know the maybe the army will turn back to flechettes and olin can like step in and go here we go it's our time (laughs) but i i think 
there's a strong case to be made for the Burton and it's, you know, and that estimate that we put on it of about 35 years ahead of its time in that it's an intermediate uh, caliber rifle with its inline ergonomics. And, you know, I think it's just one of those fascinating sort of mysterious, one of those firearms, um, historic firearms that are sort of a mystery, but every now and then we, we kind of unravel a little bit of that mystery. Yeah. But we're still waiting on that for the Benton. Yeah, so I, I think I, I would go with that as well. I think your point about the cartridge development from the 1890s, um, you know, we went, everyone was really interested in long range and then we got really interested in low weight, weight saving and sacrificing range. And yeah. then in the US, at least, we got very interested in hit probability. Um, and now we're sort of creeping back into long range. Um, I definitely with the with the with overmatch becoming sort of like king again over suppression and, and rate of fire. I think if if the next generation squad weapons ballistics turn out to be even close to the 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 Lee, uh, six millimeter. I think I think you've definitely cracked it with with that one. I think that would be what 120 years. Yeah, ahead of time. that would be it. But I think for now, until we know the uh, the specs on the cartridge, we'll have to say I'm going to have to agree with you and say the burden. I really want to say the swing out cylinder because um, it's still so popular. But I think more widely in what has sort of become officially, you know, a lot of people would say that the revolver is more of a niche gun now even though the swing out cylinder is more pop, this is very popular um, because almost all practical applications and duty weapons are semi-autos. So I would say, you know, yeah. for that aspect, I think the Burton, the Burton takes it for me. And it's just, there's so many features, you know, that's one feature in one gun. The Burton packs so many forward thinking things that it almost makes me believe exactly. in time travel. Like that's how insane the thing is. <laughs> I wish time travel was real because I would like to go back and see. Yes, we Frank would we would be and, having you know, a just, long, long conversation. Just basically, Frank, what what what's the story with this? Because this is really interesting. Why didn't you yeah. paint this? Why is there why is there no paper trail? Well, thank you very much for being on, Matt, and being our guest star. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode, uh, and a big thanks to my good friend Matt for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me on, Danny. <laughs>